I was poking around on the uh, internet uh, this week and uh, looking at different things, and I came across some really interesting uh, statistics that I thought I'd share with you this morning as we uh, begin our time together here in the Word. And uh, it has to do with birth rates, worldwide birth rates. It's uh, no secret, and I'm sure many of you are aware of the fact that birth rates have been falling in uh, developed countries, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a a moment or two. But the thing that surprised me was the number of developing countries excuse me, countries that are also experiencing declining birth rates. So uh, there, is a, there is a worldwide phenomena going on of a declining birth rate. Uh, those countries with increasing birth rates, uh, for the most part, are very small countries. And so uh, people are revising population estimates. I can remember back in the 1970s when I was in college, all the apocalyptic scenarios of increasing world population and uh, they haven't turned out to be true and the fact of the matter is uh, it if things continue the way they are it is uh, likely that the world's population will level off or even decline so there's some really interesting stuff out there but uh, i want to i want to talk just a minute or two as we get started this morning about birth rates in developed countries that is countries that are kind of first world countries and uh, there's some alarming uh, alarming statistics that are out there. Now, um, a developed country requires 2.1 births per couple in order to sustain its population. That accounts for premature uh, deaths and infertility and things like that. So 2.1 uh, births per couple in order to maintain current population levels. But The problem is that in the developed world, the rates are far below that. So, for example, Japan is operating at a 1.4 birth rate. Uh, South Korea, 1.2. China, and this one surprised me, China, 1.6. India bucks the trend at 2.6. Germany at 1.4. Spain, 1.4. Italy, 1.4. The United Kingdom, factoring in the immigration, is at 2.1. And the United States, without immigration, is at 1.9. And when immigration is factored in, we are above the replacement rate. Now, the, the crisis, and, and there is a crisis in, in these numbers, is this. The population of the, of the world is getting older, particularly in the developed nations. And so as there are fewer and fewer younger people and a growing population of older retiring people, there, there is a fiscal crisis coming. There are less and less children available to support those who are in long-term retirement situations. The social safety nets are actuarially in trouble. Now, America experienced a a falling birth rate, if you've looked at any of this, for about four years that that marginally reversed itself in 2013. And uh, the experts are saying that the the falling rate and the the recovery had to do with the economic recession that we went through at that time. So we're not really sure where America is at, although they're at 1.9 over time here without immigration. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I think maybe scary in one sense. 
uh, any country, or maybe I should say uh, differently, no country, no country that has ever fallen significantly below the replacement rate for a period of time has ever recovered. Ever in the history of the world. So these declined rates and declining rates are a very, very serious concern. So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 this morning. And I've titled the message, Valuing the Next Generation. Valuing the Next Generation. And this is an interesting text here. Uh, Originally, I was intending to sort of scoop it up into um, the next sermon and uh, not really deal with this as a standalone a section of Matthew's gospel. But the more I began to look at it and think about it, the more I thought, you know what, there is something that uh, we need to look at and think about here beyond that which uh, could be passed over in a matter of a few minutes. So this morning, we're going to take time to really explore the passage and, and I think some of the necessary implications that come out from this passage. Now, it's interesting contextually where this falls, verses 13 through 15. Maybe I'll just read it. It's short enough. I'll read it for you. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Contextually, this uh, falls in Matthew's gospel. And as we said, this is near the end of, of, of the six-month period of time in which he has been operating out of Perea, which lies east of the Jordan River, making uh, three major trips to Jerusalem for ministry and then retreating again back to Perea to avoid confrontation with the authorities. Matthew only records a, a very little from, from this six-month period of time. We looked last week that, that one of the the uh, events that Matthew records is the confrontation over divorce that begins chapter 19 that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Jesus ends that confrontation and beginning in verse 10 through 12 with a discussion of celibacy. And he, he basically says that, that uh, for some, they, they lead a celibate lifestyle. That is that, that, the, that marriage is not for them in pursuit of kingdom priorities that allow them as a gift of God to to move beyond that which is normal, which is a marital state. But it doesn't end there. Matthew doesn't end it for us there. He he then comes back, and that's why I say it's interesting. He comes back to include here these couple of verses speaking about children. So if you want to put the put that thing together, it's divorce, celibacy, children. So there's there's a family focus to this particular section of Matthew's gospel. And that's what I want to kind of go over with you this morning is this, this family focus in particular as it relates to children. Now, the uh, Christian community has always valued children. Always. For 2,000 years, the Christian community has valued children. In the early days under the Roman Empire, 
the Christians were out front in the, in the rescue ministries of, of gathering up those children that had been abandoned and cast off by society for various reasons. And so it would not be uncommon at all for Christians to come alongside and to, and to take these children in and to begin to raise them and care for them. And, not, and to see them as having value, whereas society as a whole saw them of, as of little value. Christians have always been at the forefront in, in the development of hospitals. Now, there are many reasons for that, but not the least of which are the child mortality rates that are prevalent in so much of the world and through much of history of the world. Christians have always been at the forefront of orphanages. The orphanage movement is essentially a Christian movement motivated out of a compassion for those people who are close to the heart of God. Christianity has been at the forefront of education and literacy training. It stems from a basic understanding that God speaks to his people propositionally through written revelation. And so the ability to read and write is a fundamental uh, thing for Christian people. And so to pass on literacy to an illiterate world is a worthy Christian endeavor. Interestingly, the, uh, the Sunday school movement, we're going to be starting Sunday school here in a couple of weeks. The Sunday school movement is a Christian movement, of course, but it has a long history in it, and it stems from the literacy question. Actually, and this was quite interesting, Sunday school began in Great Britain in the 1780s. 1780s, that goes back a long way. The original purpose of the Sunday school movement was to teach literacy to child factory workers. The Industrial Revolution had come upon Europe, and in particular Great Britain, and children were being shamefully treated, working six days a week, very long hours in the factories under abysmal and appalling conditions. And Christian philanthropists and pastors were concerned about this, and so the modern Sunday school movement began for the purpose of teaching literacy to these children on Sundays. By the middle of the 19th century, not the 18th, but the 19th century, Sunday school was widely available in both Britain and in America. But, uh, and the curriculum of this was a, was a Bible-based religious curriculum. So they were teaching literacy, but they were using the scriptures to teach literacy. Now, in the 1870s in America, uh, school became compulsory. That is, state education became compulsory in the, in the 1870s. And so when that happened, the literacy training was taken over by the state. And so children went to school essentially Monday through Friday. And so the Sunday school movement dropped the literacy training and focused instead on just religious training of children, and that's essentially how we understand it today. Further, uh, Vacation Bible School, that's another children's uh, program. Vacation Bible School has a long and storied history, begun in the 1890s. So VBS goes back to the 1890s. It was originally designed to reach slum kids with the gospel during the long, hot days of summer. So that was the purpose of VBS. In 1923, Standard Publishing Company developed a full-scale vacation Bible school program, which they then marketed to various churches. Awana, 
another uh, endeavor, long uh, endeavor to, uh, to value and reach children. The Awana ministry, uh, the principles that lie behind the Awana ministry began in 1941 at the uh, Northside Gospel Center in Chicago where the senior pastor Lance Latham and the youth director Art Roheim, uh, Roheim sorry, uh, developed these principles together. In, the ni- in 1950, they established Awana as a parachurch uh, organization, and according to the Awana website, they currently serve over 30,000 churches worldwide. So it began as a children youth program in a church in Chicago in 1941. How about uh, CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship, and their Good News Club? It was founded in 1937 in Warrington, Missouri. So why do I tell you these things? Well, they interest me. Uh, That's one reason I tell them to you. But beyond that is because they illustrate the fact that children have been an important uh, consideration in Christian ministry for centuries. And and if you read the history, it will tell you it's it's been a serious concern since the very beginning. So this morning we are looking at verses 13 through 15 and uh, want to draw from that uh, what I believe are four countercultural statements about children. Four countercultural statements about children. Why? So that we might appropriately value the next generation. So that we as a fellowship might properly value the next generation. So, first countercultural statement in verses 13 and following it is this children are not a bother. Okay? First countercultural statement children are not a bother. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Stop right there. Now, the word uh, children here, Matthew, the word he uses, the Greek word, it's a diminutive form. It, it indicates small children. Small children were being brought to him. Luke's gospel has a parallel account of the same event. And in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15, he indicates there were also babies being brought as well. So it appears to be small children and babies being brought to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now, unlike many religious teachers of his day, and I would say of all ages, uh, Jesus, instead had, uh, of the typical religious teacher, Jesus had a great love for and interest in children. The gospel records are uh, interesting when we begin to look at it. For example, uh, Jesus is recorded as having observed children at play. In Matthew 11 and verses 16 through 17, he took the time to stop and watch their games and become familiar enough with them that he could use them as a teaching device. They are used by him as spiritual examples. Even back here in chapter 18 in verse 2, he calls a child to himself and he uses that child as an illustration to teach a deeper truth. The accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, the gospel writers are careful to, to record the reality that not only men were taught, but women and children 
women and children as well. So Jesus was teaching not just parents, but he was also teaching children along with the parents. And certainly the statements about him healing diseases in Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25, where basically Matthew says that Jesus banished disease from Galilee for a period of time, that the healings would most certainly include children. And there are examples of Jesus in the Gospels specifically healing children. So Jesus has a great love and a great interest and a great involvement with children. Those that were thought to be of lesser value and status in, the, in that particular day. Now, it would not be uncommon for a rabbi to bring their, or for parents to bring their children to a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi so that the rabbi might pray for them. So parents would do that sort of thing. And in the ancient world, the prayer would often be accompanied by the person laying their hands on the child as they prayed, kind of identifying with the child, praying to God, asking for God's blessing upon this child. So that's a common thing, the parents bringing their children to him. But it speaks of his approachability, to be sure, that the parents would be confident enough to send their children, maybe bring their children, and in some cases, perhaps even just send their children. But the disciples, they weren't too enamored with this whole idea. The disciples thought uh, all of these kids and all of these parents and they're, they're milling around, they're crowding the house. Mark's gospel, Mark 10, 10 says they're in a house at this time. And so they're, they're sort of swarming the house and the disciples, they're not too thrilled about all that. In fact, uh, they, uh, they evidently are standing outside the house. Uh, Luke's gospel, again, indicates uh, that uh, they're kind of an ongoing process here of rebuking the people, of sending them away, of, of telling them to get out of here, go home. He, he doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't want to see you. He is too busy. Take your bratty little kids. I added that. But, but take your kids and get out of here. They're sending the people away. Look, verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. That's a sharp word. They rebuked them. They didn't say, hey, you know, it's getting late and he's kind of busy. The idea is that is they told them, scram. Take your kids and get out of here. Why? Why? Why would the disciples rebuke parents for bringing their kids for, to Jesus to pray for? Why would they do that? We can't know for sure. We can't know for sure. We, we can only suppose. So let me do that for you. Per, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps they thought he was too important. Perhaps they just thought he was too important to be involved in, in such mundane matters. I mean, I mean, after all, he is no ordinary teacher, right? He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the king of Israel. And, the, and that has been made clear to them in so many ways. And so maybe they just thought, you know what? You don't bring your kids to the king. So scram, go find somebody else to pray for your little brats. So, so maybe, maybe that, maybe it was because they, they thought this whole thing was just going to delay them. I mean, after all, uh, Jesus is, has told them he's going to Jerusalem. They're still kind of foggy about the details of all of that. But maybe they saw this as an unnecessary and unwelcome interruption, a delay in the scheduled trip to Jerusalem. Maybe. 
Or maybe it's just because they're tired and irritable and, and resent the intrusion. And we, we kind of see that, uh, that kind of approach. Uh, I won't turn you there, but in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 15, when the crowds are swarming Jesus, the, the way the disciples respond to that whole thing indicates that they're, they're not too happy about that whole reality. They're tired. They want to go home. They want to get something to eat. So maybe that's going on here too. We don't know. We don't know. But whatever the reason, they are annoyed. They are clearly annoyed with the crowd and the disciples rebuke them. Here is this crowd clamoring for Jesus to meet the spiritual needs of their children. And the disciples have no interest in it at all. Verse 14, but Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. Strong statement, very strong terms here. Actually, again, we are, we are indebted to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 10 and verse 14 uh, says explicitly, Jesus was angry with his disciples. He was angry with this. He was indignant with them and he, and he spoke to them. So here, verse 14, Mark, or Matthew records, Jesus said, let the children alone. Mark adds in the reality, Jesus is indignant. Jesus is incensed. Jesus is angry and says to his disciples, let the children alone. And do not hinder them from coming to me. You get the idea? He is not whispering this to these disciples. He is speaking to them very sharply. He is rebuking them for their attitude. He is rebuking them for their behavior. Let them alone. Do not hinder them. And instead, he is opening himself up, his arms wide, with a very wide and emphatic invitation to bring the children and allow me to touch them and pray for them. Very, very wide open approach. Now, evidently, the disciples have not learned the lesson of Matthew chapter 18 and verses 3 and 4, right? Where Jesus used the child to, to illustrate for them the reality that one does not enter the kingdom of heaven when one is puffed up with worldly value. And one must humble their heart. So there was a lesson on humility and greatness back there involving a child. But, but evidently, the disciples, they still haven't at this point in their lives... They still have not grasped the reality of that message. So they see these children as a hindrance, as an irritant, as a bother. Folks, it's easy to, to get on that kind of a bandwagon. It is very, very easy to identify not with Jesus, but with the disciples. Very, very easy. When we... Adopt the world's values. Listen to me. When we adopt the world's values, we have a tendency to look at people as a means to an end. As a means to an end. That is that we, we look at people and we say, what can I accomplish through that person? Or what can I get from that person? Or how can that person help me accomplish my agenda? Or said in another way, how can I use them in a way that accomplishes what I want accomplished? And when we have that kind of a mindset, children are a bother. Children are a hindrance. They are, they are something to be ignored. 
Or they're a, they're a means to an end, and the end is, is getting to the parents. So we will pretend interest to ch- in children because what we really want are the parents. By the way, Madison Avenue, they totally get this. They totally get it. Kids don't have any money. You know that, right? Mom and dad got money, but, but the marketing is targeted to the children. Why? Because they're using them to get at mom and dad. And sadly, even some Christian churches can become guilty of such tactics. Using children to get at parents. Rather than seeing children as made in God's image and and of need of of spiritual direction and and human compassion, they they instead, they're they're seen as a logistical problem we've got to solve, right? So so basically, what's the least we need to do to get, get, take care of these kids so we can do real ministry to the parents? So children become a logistical problem. But that's not the heart of the Savior. Not at all. Jesus makes it very, very clear. He is indignant. He is indignant when the, when the disciples try to run off the kids. And, and it doesn't matter what their reasoning is, right? Well, I supposed for you a, a few possibilities. If you like one that's more noble than that, go ahead and suppose it. It doesn't matter. They are still rebuked sharply. And Jesus takes the time, notice this, to individually touch these kids. Verse 15, after laying his hands on them. It's not just like a, a wave and a, you know, a crowd benediction. There's, there's personal contact, touch, individual approach. He takes the time to individually touch them. He takes the time to individually pray and ask the Father's blessing upon them. And when he's done, and not before, he departs from there, it says. He departs from there. He leaves the area, I suspect, in order to avoid any further confrontations with the local Pharisees, whom he's just humiliated. So, the first countercultural statement for us this morning is that children are not a bother. Children are not a bother. Second, second statement is children have something to emulate. Children have something to emulate. Now, this is hard to admit as an adult, right? Adults, we have it together, and we don't normally want to look to a child to learn a lesson, but Jesus is saying there is something very important to learn here. Something that small children can teach us. Something that is not optional for us to learn, by the way. Something that we desperately need to learn desperately need to learn verse 14 for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these children or such as these now previously in chapter 18 verses 1 to 14 jesus has said his his followers must adopt the 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 attitude of humility that is the the understanding that a child has which they are of no place of societal value his disciples must adopt that position themselves no status in the eyes of the world 
But here he, he is teaching a different lesson. And again, he's teaching a lesson from these children, the such as these, indicates that he is widening this out to a lesson here. And the lesson in he's teaching is that the kingdom of heaven is made up of people who are in some way like these children. Something about the children illustrates a, a necessity for adults. Something we need to learn. So what is it? What is it about children that Jesus is pointing to here that that is worthy of emulating and indeed is critical to emulate? Well, it cannot be saving faith. It cannot be saving faith. For, For small children do not exercise saving faith. So that's not it. It cannot be true innocence. Cannot be true innocence because cute as children are, they are born with an Adamic nature, fallen and in bondage to sin. And all you got to do is add time and food and it will manifest itself all over the place, right? Parents do not teach their children to steal, hit, throw tantrums and on and on. They don't have to teach them, okay? Okay. They learned it from Adam. So it cannot be true innocence. Children, they are very cute, but they are not truly innocent. So that's not what's being talked about here. So what is he saying? What is it about these children that is so worthy of emulation? I think the answer is this. I think the answer is that these small children have a a natural openness a natural openness to the things of God. They have, a, they have a natural trustfulness. They are trusting individuals when they are young. They haven't learned yet that the, word, the world is going to burn them. So they are naturally a trusting kind of people. They are also a responsive kind of people. When they hear, they respond. They, they want to please their parents. So there's openness, there's trustfulness, there's a responsiveness. And I believe that's what, that's what Jesus is identifying here. That's what he's talking about. If I could say it this way, uh, these small children and small children in general, they, they model what it means to be poor in spirit. Right? Remember, remember way back, and for some of you it's way, way back, to uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're back in the recesses of your mind to Matthew chapter 5. That's about three years ago. Right? In the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think the children provide a model of what Jesus is talking about. Beloved, Messiah's kingdom inverts the values of the world. Wouldn't you agree? It turns everything upside down, or probably better said, right side up. The world says you have to work to get to the top, right? Grab what you can, worry about what you can't, and and crush whoever gets in your way. That's the basic remedy or formula for success. Jesus says... We're blessed if we reject that approach. 
We're blessed if we, if we openly receive him. Receive the truth about him. And what he's revealed about the life to come. If we believe and trust in his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and, and his second coming as the anointed messianic king, then we are children of his kingdom. Then we belong to God. Then we are living like a child. Living like a child. Now the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, you need to ask yourself this morning is, when I approach the word of God, do I come as a child? Do I come with, a, with an openness? Do I come with a trustfulness? Do I, do I come with a responsiveness to God? Do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Or do I come with all my grown-up baggage? Because Jesus says, only as a little child, only as we approach him as a little child, Will we receive entrance into his kingdom? Children have something that we must emulate. Third, children are an investment in the future. Children are an investment in the future. Okay. So you go on the internet and you look around and the latest figures released by the USDA, right? The United States Department of Agriculture says, are you ready? Buckle your seatbelts. The average cost for a middle income family, that's most of you. The average cost for a middle income family, not including a college education to raise a child at the age of 18 is... $241,080. $241,000. That's what the USDA says. And these numbers are recent, by the way. Now, that number is, without a doubt, staggering. Right? That number is staggering. And it is also, by the way, subject to much criticism and dispute. The methodology used to calculate that uh, number is flawed. One could argue that it was done for political purposes, but we won't go there. Whatever behind it, that's the number that's out there. But you go to the Internet, and it's all over the Internet. People are saying, you've got to be crazy. I've raised 10 kids, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what is the real number? Don't know. Many people say it's, uh, it's less than half of that government estimate of 241, less than half of that. Others say that the number gets smaller still. Uh, the smallest estimate I saw was 52,000. The number gets smaller still when you have larger families. They call it economies of scale, right? You have certain fixed expenses, you spread them over more children, the cost per child becomes less. I guess that's an advertisement for... Large families, right? You want to get rich? Have lots of kids. I should write a book with that title, shouldn't I? Indeed. 
Now, there are costs beyond financial costs in raising children, right? There are, there are personal costs in having and raising children. There are physical costs, like fatigue, right? Young parents, like fatigue. That is a real physical cost. There is the cost of the loss of privacy, okay? The loss of privacy. There are emotional costs, Things like heartache, things like worry. There's no escaping the reality. Having and raising children is expensive. It's costly. It's going to cost us a lot. To that, we can add a frequent sense of inadequacy and helplessness. That will either drive you to despair or it will drive you to your knees to pray. You want your prayer life to improve? Children are one way. Okay? They are one way. In fact, I would be so bold to say that for a Christian parent, I think raising children is one of God's preferred means for confronting us in our own selfishness. And crushing our self-confidence. All right? They say experts on child raising are those who have no children. (laughs) Soon as you have a child, you begin to realize you're not so much of an expert. Right? So the costs are high. They are very, very high. And in order to justify such costs, we need to see children as an investment. Beloved, the world doesn't. That's why birth rates have fallen and are falling. So this is a countercultural statement. There's an old Chinese proverb. It says this, one generation plants the trees, another gets the shade. One generation plants the trees, another gets the shade. So, so raising God-fearing children is like planting trees that bless the future. They bless the future. There's a sense in which we live on through our children. There's a sense in which they are, they are missionaries that we train and send forward to a time that we will never go. A place we can never visit. The book of Proverbs contains a lot of wisdom on parenting. It's a great place for young parents to spend a lot of time. Reading, meditating, talking about the truths of the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs, being that they are Proverbs, are not promises, right? They are not promises. They are truisms. What that means is that these are the things in the world in which God has made, and according to the laws of both nature, uh, physical laws and spiritual laws, this is generally how things work out. But it is not an ironclad promise. But the book of Proverbs reflects a basic worldview that says there are two ways to live. There are only two ways to live. There is a way of wisdom and there is a way of folly. And so raising our children in the way of wisdom generally turns out well. That's what the Proverbs would tell you. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse Six, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not 
depart from it. Now, there is a popular notion that, uh, that says that what the advice is being given here is that we are to, we are to raise up a child according to their bent. That is, if they're good with their hands, we direct them towards using their hands. If they're good with their head, you know, we direct them towards computer programming or some foolishness like that. Not computer programming is foolishness, but the notion that that's what the Proverbs is talking about. Okay? In the Proverbs, there are two ways to live. There is a way of wisdom. There is a way of folly. According to the way he should go is the way of wisdom. And that's what's being talked about. So train up your child according to wisdom, in the way of wisdom. And trust in the Lord that even if he strays, he'll return. The training has to be comprehensive. It needs to address the child's thinking, the child's emotions, the child's will, the child's conscience. All of these things need to be brought under submission to the word of God, the way of wisdom. Now, Solid investments take time to build, All right? Get-rich-quick schemes, the book of Proverbs tells you, are the way of folly, the way of folly. So, so an investment for the future requires an extended period of sowing that eventually leads to reaping. We sow a little for a long time, and then we reap. So if we want a good return on the investment of parenting, we need to do the hard work. And it's hard work. It's hard work. Charles Bridges in his commentary on Proverbs writes, and I think it's excellent, it's worth the price of the book, or you can just copy it off this and then you don't have to buy the book. But he says this, he says, quote, a child learns more by the eye than by the ear. The child learns more by the eye than by the ear. Very, very good. Very good. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's the idea here of, a, of an ongoing investment. Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Your kids are going to be like you, for good or ill. So children are not a bother. Children are some, have something we must emulate. Three, children are an investment in the future. And fourth, children are a community treasure. Children are a community treasure. Now, on the surface of this, um, a community might say that children have little value, or, or certainly not, not much value in the here and now. Right? For all the work, all the investment, way too much work. But they are a community treasure. They are. Why? Why do I say that they're a community treasure? Well, I think the biggest reason uh, that they're a community treasure lies right here in this text. And that's because children are a constant reminder of the simplicity and humility that are essential as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Lots of little children running around are constantly reminding us that, that there is something about them and how they approach life that Jesus says we must emulate. It's not just a good idea. It's not just an option. We've got something to learn and we need to learn it. So it's a treasure to have lots of little kids underfoot in the community. Matthew 18.3, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or Jesus' words here, right? The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. That should cause us to, to sit up, take notice, and ponder the reality of it. Beyond that, beyond that, I, I believe children are, are a community treasure because the future of the local church depends on them. Do you understand that? The, the future of Foothill Bible Church does not lie with me or many of you. It lies with the children. It lies with the children. This is a, this is a great relay race in which we must pass the baton well to subsequent generations, and in particular, the young generation. Matthias Media out of Australia, and they do a lot of really good work with churches. They've done an extensive study of the Anglican church in the, in the United Kingdom. And that's both a liberal and, uh, and, and I say that includes the Anglican church in Australia, which has some, some very conservative and evangelical pieces to it. Coming out of this uh, lengthy study of uh, church attendance statistics for the United Kingdom, I couldn't find comparable for the U.S., but I'll tell you what, where the U.K. goes, we're, you know, we're like least to them. We're following. In the U.K., 39% of the churches have no one attending under the age of 11. 39%. 49% of the churches have no one attending between the ages of 11 and 14. 59% of the churches have no one attending between the ages of 15 and 19. 59% of the churches. Matthias Mina goes on to say, and I quote, if less than a third of the people attending church, and less, I didn't say that well, if less than a third of the people attending church are under the age of 20, then the church is in long-term decline. All right? So if less than a third of the congregation here, according to Matthias's work, is not 20 and under, we are in long-term decline. Causes you to sit up and take notice. There have been statistics that have been rolling around the internet and Christian magazines and Christian radio about problems in the evangelical church of teenagers leaving the church, right? You've read some of this, you've heard some of this. Well, a study was uh, done by a man by the name of Ed Stetzer from uh, Lifeway Research. I think he does some really good work, and I, I think his study is sound. And his conclusion is that all across America, Protestant churches are experiencing a 70% drop of youth attending church when they graduate high school. Now, that's all Protestant churches. So that's evangelical churches and liberal churches. It's all Protestant churches. When the graduate, when children graduate from high school, 70% drop out of the church. It's a frightening number. Frightening number. He's gone on to say in the study that they've done that about 10 years later, almost two-thirds of them return again. 
So there is some hope in that, but it's still a frightening number if only two-thirds come back. Now, he reports uh, statistically there are, there are four factors which are predictive in determining which teens stay connected to the church and which ones don't. So here are the four predictive factors for staying connected to the church. Number one, the church's commitment to discipleship of teens. Not commitment to pizza, not commitment to, to Six Flags, commitment to discipleship. So that's number one, making disciples. Two, parents who are actively involved in the local church. Parents who are actively involved. Remember, more is learned from the ear or from the eye than through the ear, right? So parents' active involvement in the, in the local church is a predictor of the child's continuing involvement. Three, serious and relevant Bible teaching. Serious and relevant Bible teaching is a predictor for continued involvement. And four, at least one adult from church making a significant investment in them, both personally and spiritually. At least one adult, other than their parents, from the church, taking the time to get to know them and to invest in them personally and spiritually. These are the predictors. And beloved, I am absolutely so thankful for the many, many, many people, many of you, who have given of yourselves to invest in another generation. We've raised four children in this church. They have all moved through the teen years. And I can tell you that you have, some of you have been very helpful, very instrumental in the lives of my children. And I know there are many others around here who would say the same thing. You know who you are. Many of you investing, even though you might not either have children of your own or might not have children in that particular age group. But because of a love for the next generation, motivated out of a love for Christ, you have invested. And it's, it's paying dividends. And it will pay dividends. So we're getting ready to start another ministry year, right? September's coming and oy, then it starts, right? Don't grow weary in well-doing. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Continue to sow and in due time, we'll all reap. We'll all reap. Raising godly children is a community project. It is a community project. And the local body of Christ can and must be involved in that project. There's many ways to be involved and just kind of roll through them quickly with you. Just some things that came off the top of my head, but, but simple things. There is a, what I call the Titus 2 principle, right? That's, that's intergenerational ministry. That's older ministering to youngers. It is so important to have a multi-generational ministry. We are blessed in this church to have multiple generations, four generations in this church. That is a very good, positive, healthy sign that pays long-term dividends. But you know what? It requires patience and it requires love between the generations, doesn't it? It would be so much easier if everybody were like me. But I wouldn't grow in Christ. I grow in Christ when, when I'm called to minister alongside people that are very unlike me. 
and challenge me in the places where I don't want to be challenged. So the Titus 2 principle, beyond that, parenting classes. Some of the parenting classes that have been going on and how helpful, how thankful I am. Hey, listen, you know, when I brought my children home from the hospital, I, I turned them every which way but loose. There were no directions anywhere. Did you know that? They're not stamped on their bottom. They're not on the box. They're not in four different languages. There aren't any instructions. And we live in a day and age in which there is so much social mobility that the, the, the wisdom that used to be passed from generation to generation in the, in the areas of basic child rearing has been lost in our culture and people are adrift and they need help. They need help. So I am thankful for parenting classes, passing on that wisdom. I'm thankful for surrogate grandmothers. Many of us don't live close enough to, to have natural grandparents involved in our lives. So I, I am thankful for my children that they have had surrogate grandparents and they have come from this congregation. Very thankful. Certainly intercessory prayer. Praying for one another's children. So helpful, so important. It requires a level of uh, intimacy and transparency to be sure, right? Because nothing uh, bristles the hair on the back of your neck more than somebody either finding something wrong with your children or you having to admit something about your children, right? It kind of cuts to the heart of, of our pride and all the rest of that. But, but listen, if you're having some trouble with, with one of your children, you are not alone. You're not alone. There is not a family in this church that has raised multiple children that have not had some difficult times. And we need each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to love each other. So praying, not just for my children, but praying for your children. And you praying for mine. And finally, I'd say this. There's there's an atmosphere of shared values and beliefs that is very, very important helpful listen we don't all do it the same way i get that you know we're not cookie cutters our kids are not identical our family structure is not identical but but we are moving in the same basic direction if you've been part of this church for any length of time there is there is an environment here and and i'm not making an apology for it in which we value marriage and we value children and making disciples and and so if that is something that you understand to be biblical and appeals to you then this is a great place to be great place to be you come and be part of it. And you, 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 you enter in. And then you won't be the only adult voice speaking into your kid's life, right? When they roll the eyes and, you know, right before the eagle pecks them out. That's in Proverbs, by the way. Yeah? See kids going around, one eye gone? That's what happened. Right? That's what happened. So we can just encourage one another in these things. So it's that that atmosphere of shared beliefs. Hey, we're not perfect here, right? We're not perfect. We've got a lot of things that are not pleasing to the Lord in in my life, your life, our lives, to be sure. But we're moving in the right direction. We're striving after. I believe God is pleased. God is pleased. And he has continued to pour out his mercy, his grace, and his blessing upon many, many, many families through the ministry of this church. To God be the glory. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it speaks to us through your spirit exactly where we need to hear.
Oh, Lord, may you bless these young families that are starting out and, and want to do it right. Father, encourage them in the long race ahead of them. Father, for those who would love to have children and, and you have not seen fit to answer that prayer, I pray for them that, that you would help them to be content, to learn to be content. And Father, to seek and find those places where they can invest in the next generation as well. I thank you for those that have and are. And Lord, for our older saints, I thank you for their love for the younger generation and their desire to see the gospel passed on powerfully, vibrantly. Often the, their ministry is more quiet, more behind the scenes, it, prayer and, and even giving. Father, thank you for them. Let us, uh, let us learn to value what you value, Lord. Let us humble our hearts. Let us seek wisdom. Father, may you make this church a lighthouse in a really dark world. We pray for Jesus' name. Amen.